Welcome to Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, where we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. I'm Rachel Tappan. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jonathan Tsai about his recent paper in the journal Neural Rehabilitation and Neural Repair titled Five Features to Look for in Early Phase Clinical Intervention Studies. Dr. Tsai, who goes by JT, has a Doctor of Physical Therapy degree from Northwestern University, and he's currently working on his PhD with Dr. Rich Ivory at the Cognition and Action Lab at UC Berkeley. And so in the interest of full disclosure, JT and I know each other already from his days at Northwestern, where I'm on faculty. Um, I can tell you, you know, Discus listeners, we're in for a treat. I, I know JT to be smart and an analytical thinker. And, and so whether you are interested in spinal cord injury rehabilitation or neurologic rehabilitation, you know, or any, frankly, any rehabilitation where motor learning is at play, I think you're going to find something that you can use in today's discussion. And so, JT, welcome to Discus. Thanks, Rachel. And I, I do want to say a big part of being analytical was attributed to my education at Northwestern University. Uh, they did not sponsor this show, but I, I, I do I do think a, lot, a big part of my training at Northwestern really helped me think through difficult problems, especially in the clinic. Well, mine too. So I guess there we are, huh? Um, so let's let's talk about your paper. Um, in this paper, you put forward a set of recommendations for um, how clinicians can identify early phase intervention studies that will bring immediate value to their clinical practice, which I think is a really important topic. And, and so can you talk about what led you to put these recommendations forward um, in the first place? Why, why do we need them? Yeah, so when I was reading the clinical literature in PT school, uh, I had a pain point, and the pain point was that I wanted to quickly and efficiently and effectively evaluate papers that uh, might not necessarily fall uh, as a clinical practice guideline or a systematic review or a large-scale randomized control trial. How do I evaluate and quickly evaluate uh, papers that are more early phase, that have a lower end, but offer some novel uh, insight that I can translate quickly um, to the clinic. And part of this is motivated by oftentimes CPGs um, for spinal cord injury, um, for stroke, they often take many years uh, to bear fruit. And this is because research is often slow uh, and slow for a good reason, because there's a lot of checks and balances, peer reviews that re are required to rigorously assess research. And typically, these studies can take a lot of time. And at the same time, uh, large-scale uh, randomized control trials that are multi-sites, uh, many participants, um, they, they often take a long time and sometimes even proving no better than uh, standard care. And so um, one insight was that a lot of times novel ideas and very useful ideas are at the frontiers of research, are in these papers that are more early phase studies, and they might have insights uh, already. Even today, there are probably many papers that can offer insights that can better uh, our care and better the lives of patients today. And so I could list some, a few examples, but uh, in general, that was the motivation for this paper. How can we evaluate these newer papers, these more early phase papers that are at frontiers of research that may not have um, 
a lot of evidence behind them, but still have a lot of useful ideas. Yeah, I, you make a lot of really important points. And if, if I may add some too, as I read, um, as I read your paper, one of the things I'm struck by is, you know, it can be easy to get caught up in just what's the quality of the, like the science in the study. Um, and that is really important. That is, of course, like a, a baseline kind of, you know, foundational kind of a thing. I think some of your recommendations also incorporate some consideration for the, the clinical meaningfulness and utility as well, too. Just, you know, that the, um, you know, for an early phase interventional study, it's not just about what's the, what's the study design, um, but also about what some of the theory um, underpin and the, and the science underpinning the intervention in the first place. I, I, I think that, that those are really important pieces. Yeah, and Rachel, to build on that point, um, we, we had another uh, motivation, which is to evaluate these papers in light of science and in light of motor recovery uh, rather than compensation. And so uh, we, we suggest that papers that are grounded in uh, science and especially uh, the modern theories of neuroscience and um, cutting edge ideas in motor learning um, help promote uh, motor recovery. So the use of this recovery of the same effector, so the use of this right arm to uh, do what, is, um, what the right arm was previously um, before the injury. So how can we uh, promote recovery rather than oftentimes um, relying on compensatory techniques. And this requires an eye for um, some, some of the ideas we pose, uh, the, some of the recommendations we pose in this paper. Well, and, and what a good segue. Will you briefly describe your recommendations? And, and I'll, for the listeners, I'll say, like, if you want all the details of the recommendations, you need to go read JT's paper. Um, but JT, if you can describe briefly for us your recommendations, um, as far as what are the features that we should be looking for as we peruse the neurorehabilitation intervention research literature, um, that'd be really great. Yeah, great, Rachel. So the, the five recommendations we have um, really follow the, the structure of a typical paper, from the introduction to the message, to the results, to the discussion. And our last recommendation is to round out the study as a whole. And I would say none of these are novel ideas. Um, these are things that were taught in PT school, but we repackaged it and added some examples for you to, to follow these ideas. So starting with number one, just briefly covering each a little bit, um, the introduction and whether asking yourself whether it's grounded in basic science research. And a heuristic that um, could be used is whether uh, whether this intervention that you're reading about ha has motivation, has roots in studies that span a wide range of techniques. In the method section, um, whether the intervention relies on uh, ideas on experience-dependent plasticity. And these are also things we learn in PT school. I would point to the Klein et al. paper where they outline um, what is experience-dependent plasticity? Uh, what are the critical components, like the timing, like saliency, like repetition, um, challenge? Uh, those are all things that uh, funnel into experience-dependent plasticity, helping our brain um, recover and helping our motor control uh, skills uh, be restored. And thirdly, the results section, we're moving from the methods to the results. 
uh, include uh, results on how impairment level measures and participant level measures improve. And impairment level measures, maybe like strength, range of motion, are known and we think track motor recovery and track neural recovery um, the best uh, as in contrast to activity level measures. Um, and we also highlighted participant level measures, which are uh, examples of this are like maybe the SF12, the PADS, the hospital anxiety depression scale, things that really get to the quality of life and whether participants are uh, enjoying therapy, whether they would follow through with their therapy in the future. And we think these are critical components that uh, we wanted to highlight in this uh, literature that's very um, dominated by activity level measures that may uh, be assessing uh, improvements in compensation rather than impairment level improvement as much. So fourthly, um, we're highlighting how the discussion section should draw on converging evidence that support the results of um, the study. So the discussion section is really where um, uh, where the researcher discusses consistent findings, uh, discuss dissenting findings, and we are highlighting how the discussion draws on converging evidence to support the claims made by the paper. The paper you're reading may have legs. And lastly, this is more speculative, but we think is very important, is that the study highlights and considers the person's perspective, perceptions, and readiness for rehabilitation, and taking into account the participant's mindset, the, their patient's um, goals when designing a therapy. And we think that's an important uh, ingredient uh, for motor recovery and needs more research, frankly, um, to see how important and how um, how vital it is for your therapy to be aligned with the patient's goals and expectations. And can I ask you a question about that last one? Um, so when you say that the study as a whole should be like taking the person's perspectives and so on in, into account, does that mean that the intervention itself need, should be adaptable depending on the person's um, preferences and individual needs and and so on? Or is that more taking into account that, um, well, I guess I'll leave it there. Is that is that what that means or am I misinterpreting? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, that You hit the nail right on its head. Um, we, a good example of this is the Queen Square study by Dr. Uh, Nick Ward and his group, where they, they have a, a an intervention that's pretty demanding and very challenging. But a key part of that study and why uh, me and Carolee think they showed great improvements in um, over the course of uh, the therapy is that they took into account each participant. They tailored um, their therapy to match their participant, their, their patient's uh, goals. And this includes problem solving in the patient's home environment, um, how to incorporate the ideas of uh, how to use your arm and strength um, and range of motion training to create a good home exercise program that uh, relying on the participant's um, actual home environment. And 
uh, we think that's a critical component for uh, for the benefits of rehab to persist. And another um, component of this that ties into why uh, participant maybe quality of life and satisfaction uh, and tailoring for therapy to the participant may matter is the research on enriching environments and how much benefit um, having an enriched enriched environment may have on um, therapeutic gains. And this literature started, uh, part of it started at UC Berkeley um, with mice. And Dale Corbett has a few studies. We have some citations from his group where mice being in the standard mice um, house versus a more enriching, think of this as a playground for mice, um, which group uh, produced the best therapeutic gains after uh, therapy in mice? Um, at, from you know therapy after mice incur like a, a induced a stroke and seeing which group recovers the most and we see there's a benefit for mice to be in more of a playground setting in a rich setting and we think this research is um, ripe for clinical translation and possibly I think there's research that's ongoing in humans but this is another idea that relates to why patient satisfaction participant satisfaction and having the therapy integrated into their life situation might be an important component. We wanted to highlight this. Um, you know, you, you've given today and also in your paper, you give examples that are based in some of them in the stroke research. And so I'm curious to know, of course, acknowledging that this we're um, here with these spinal cord injury SIGs podcast as well, but how broadly do your recommendations apply to neural rehabilitation in general and motor learning intervention research in general, um, and specifically to spinal cord injury as well? How, how, how broad can we be in applying your paper? Yeah, so uh, uh, in short, uh, this paper and these ideas, uh, we believe, are quite domain general. They apply to um, a clinician thinking through uh, how to evaluate papers they read and whether to apply uh, what they read to the clinic. And in terms of motor learning, um, I'll give a few examples of concepts that have been very um, formative for myself in motor learning. So one example of this is Fitz and Posner um, proposed a model for how we learn uh, a motor skill, and it starts from uh, the first phase, which is cognitive stage, where we learn hand placement, how to move our arm, how to throw a frisbee. A coach usually instructs us, uh, just like a PT, respecting a patient, how to perform a proper sit-to-stand. So this is like a cognitive stage, and um, then that sets the foundation for the more associative stage. So that's the second stage of motor learning, where uh, we Repetition and practice helps uh, integrate what we know on a cognitive level to become more and more automatic. So we do uh, a sit-to-stand in a proper way without even thinking about it. And that's the last stage, the automatic stage. So Fitz and Posner's from the cognitive to the associative to lastly the automatic stage of motor learning, I believe, applies to um, all domains. And, all domains of uh, depending on if you're treating, whether you're treating someone with spinal cord injury or someone with a stroke. And a lot of this research in motor learning is at the, 
frontiers of science that may not have a CPG and may not have a systematic review. And um, me and Carly here writing this paper, um, we posit that there are a lot of great ideas in these papers that are, are worth uh, digging into and going into a treasure on, um, but it takes some um, it takes some skill to be able to evaluate these papers, and that's where uh, hopefully our paper, uh, my paper clearly would help uh, a bit. Um, the second concept I would like to highlight in motor learning that could apply um, to all many neurological populations is the idea and related idea about implicit and explicit learning. And so often when we provide verbal cues, um, we can see changes uh, in how our patients adapt and do things differently just based on our verbal cue. And what we find in their learning research is that these, uh, these uh, verbal cues, these uh, very conscious, instructive, volitional changes in our participants are very flexible. Like they can immediately do what you ask them to do most of the time. However, they have low, uh, they're also very volatile, meaning these motor memories typically uh, are susceptible to forgetting. And without repeated practice, uh, these skills can oftentimes be lost. In contrast, uh, we also see that uh, implicit motor learning, so motor learning that relies maybe on repetition, maybe on experiencing error signals that are very small that help your motor system become more and more fine-tuned. The implicit motor learning system is often slow and gradual, although uh, it's oftentimes more stable. So uh, these are just different tools in the clinician's toolbox in motor learning. Knowing that more explicit uh, um, verbal cues that where you see patients uh, enable any changes in their behavior might be great that they're making big changes, but they are also very volatile and easily forgotten, whereas more implicit uh, motor changes that come about repeated practice are slow and gradual, but they're more stable. So knowing these tools and a combination of these tools uh, arm clinicians with a, with a toolbox um, to use things we um, have discovered in the field motor learning and apply it. Um, to their patients. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing you say really, and if I can do a, a super brief summary, but you'll correct me if I'm not getting it right. I mean, I, what I'm hearing you say to some extent is motor learning's motor learning. And so whether you're talking about somebody with, with stroke or somebody with spinal cord injury, a lot of the same, a lot of the same concepts can apply. Now, I, granted, some of that can also change depending on what part of the central nervous system has the lesion and so on, but that, that in a broad sense, a lot of the same concepts apply. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, completely, completely. So, so your paper provides some guidance and, and permission even to implement newer, more you know, emerging interventions in, in neurorehabilitation. Um, you know, even if we don't have evidence that's so robust to rise to the level of, say, um, a clinical practice guideline or a systematic review, and, and frankly, that includes a lot of what we do in PT practice um, as well, you know, and so your, your paper gives us some guidance and some recommendations for how we can start to um, implement some newer research, you know, as long as we have um evidence that's grounded in those five features that you that you told us about and and I'll say that you know when I think about my clinical practice I feel pretty good about that especially when um 
you know, whatever the newer research is, whatever the newer intervention is, is at least consistent with um, areas where I have more robust evidence, more clinical practice guidelines or systematic reviews, you know, randomized controlled trials. Um, can you speak to, you know, where that line shifts, though? You know, I, I, where I think about then if there's a scenario where maybe there's newer evidence that is more recent, you know, but, but you know, less robust or there's less of that evidence, you know, just because of time, but that um, where the intervention is more groundbreaking or maybe it deviates from what we've done before, does that change um, or should that change for us as clinicians um, when we would cross that threshold of like, okay, now this isn't just a thing that's going to be investigated in the research or that I'm going to read about in the research. Now it's a thing that I'm actually going to try out in the clinic. Um, you know, how does what came before um, impact when we should be trying new things out in the clinic? Yeah, Rachel, that's a, that's a great question. And that's a difficult question to answer well. I think um, part of it is that, you know, sometimes these methods can be quite new and quite different than, like you said, what was tried before. I would highlight um, features number one and two. So even though the, the exact technique, the exact therapeutic tool might be different than what was tried before, you can ask yourself whether this new therapy is grounded and is motivated by what we know about how the brain works. Um, can we, is there evidence maybe in uh, rodent studies, maybe in primate studies, that support and provide the neurological foundation um, for this research, uh, for this therapy that can motivate it? Um, and secondly, is this research um, grounded in Prime et al.'s uh, ideas on motor learning and how to improve um, motor recovery through these learning principles like timing, uh, repetition, challenge, et cetera? So those two features might be um, more emphasized, um, especially with the techniques that may be new but don't have a lot of converging evidence. Uh, because it just simply hasn't been tried uh, that many times before. Uh, that's neat. So, like the um, the like the foundation is there, the science is there, the principles are there. But then maybe this new intervention is is uh, you know a, can take those things and go off in a different direction. But you've still got the same foundation. That's um, that's a neat way to look at that. Completely, completely. I do have to preface though that I. Of course, systematic reviews, of course, CPGs, of course, um, meta-analyses. Those are the gold standard for research. And uh, Carly and I are not saying that to disregard those. Um, in fact, we're saying those are, those are the gold standards. However, um, they can be supplemented um, by you know, also this newer research that's coming out that's a little bit more difficult to digest. And we think that both uh, clinicians having both sets of tools, these seasoned, uh, well-established uh, CPGs, as well as maybe some knowledge of what's coming out in the frontiers of research would be the, the best of both worlds. 
Well, I, I think that is an incredibly important point and, and actually probably a good point for us to, to wrap up on. Um, a great closing um, uh, thing to think about. Now, JT, I'm so glad you were able to join me today. It's been really terrific connecting with you again. And I'm looking forward to seeing more from you in the future. Great, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been really fun. And thanks to you, Discus listeners, for tuning in. Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science is a podcast from the Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the American Physical Therapy Association. Ethan Stoller edited the episode and composed the theme music. And I'm Rachel Tappan, your host. Until next time.